For decades, chief human capital officers have worked with the Office of Personnel Management to shape workforce policies. A Chico Council forum held last fall helped shape OPM's recent guidance for the future of work. Now human capital officers are looking to further strengthen the role of the Chico Council. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details of the Council's 2022 report to Congress and the outcomes of that fall forum from Chico Council Executive Director Margot Conrad. We spent a lot of time really digging into what does the future of the workforce really look like. And we were able to collaboratively come up with a vision of the federal workforce. And that is a workforce that's inclusive, agile, and engaged with the right skills to enable mission delivery. And from that, ultimately, OPM did put out a memo this spring in 2023 that's really laying a marker for what that future state is that we aspire to. And so it was a great example of You know, the Chico is coming together with OPM in partnership to really put together a vision for that future state. Another example of, I think, some really big success is around hiring. So with the bipartisan infrastructure law, there is a huge need for hiring talent across the federal government to be able to help implement these new infrastructure projects. And at OPM, we worked with seven different federal agencies and their Chicos very closely to make sure that we had some streamlined processes to help attract talent into these key roles to to implement the legislation. And I'll give you an example. We did a lot of multi-agency hiring actions. So, for example, we did one for HR talent, HR specialists. And by bringing agencies together, we were able to hire over 82 HR specialists across the federal government to help support agencies who then, in turn, were going to do more hiring to help support government at large to bring in this infrastructure talent. So these are some examples of where we were able to really work together collaboratively with Chico's. We've hired more than 5,000 people to support the bipartisan infrastructure law now through some of these new tools by partnering together, by doing um, pooled hiring. And so we've seen some great success. Just a little bit more about the future of work and that guidance from OPM. Can you share a little bit more about what the conversations looked like that went into forming that when you worked in tandem with the Chico Council? Like, How did that relationship look and how did that influence the final products? We've had some really great discussions as a full council, as I mentioned. We really grappled with this, talked about it. Is this the right vision? Does this resonate for all of us? And I think that was a really, really terrific discussion. But we are also having conversations in other forums. So, for example, we have a Future of the Workforce Working Group. We brought a lot of this content to that working group and also got additional feedback and perspective from the broader HR community. And then whenever we're developing guidance, policy guidance in this space, or, for example, we just issued new training for supervisors and managers, not just supervisors and managers, it's really free for all employees across government. This training is to really help employees really thrive in a hybrid work environment. These are the kinds of things that when we're developing the training or the policy guidance, we go to either the full Chico Council or their partners within the HR community and ask for their feedback to make sure that what we're developing is really responsive to their needs. In 2021, I believe it was that you stood up the executive steering committee within the Chico Council. What's the purpose of that committee and how do you see the future of the Chicos on that committee going forward? It really serves as the voice for the Chicos and the executive steering committee or ESC, as we call it, is also a sounding board for OPM in terms of the different types of policies we're putting out or different initiatives. We meet 
twice a month at a minimum, sometimes more frequently if things come up. And really this body is advising on policy, strategic direction. Again, they're providing the Chico perspective on behalf, behalf of their council, fellow council members. We often will pressure test things there. So we'll bring ideas you know, as we're creating them or thinking them through to the executive steering committee, get their feedback and input before we talk about it as a full council. And so I think that's been incredibly valuable. Also, we have time on the agenda where we hear whatever is on their minds, right? So it's a it's it's a two-way street here. It's OPM looking for feedback and guidance on things. And then often executive steering committee members will raise topics or issues that are important to them that they're hoping OPM will consider or or they want more information on. And so it's just a really terrific forum for open dialogue and sharing and providing input on policy and also thinking about the agendas and things like that of what we're going to talk about at the full council meeting. Can you give an example either of how the ESC has changed the process for getting something through to OPM or something that maybe they've brought to OPM as an issue that you guys are going to start looking at going forward? One topic that I think we've talked quite a bit about is human capital data. That's a big topic right now and something where there's a lot of energy in the whole council. We've talked with the executive steering committee level as well as the full council, and we have a working group on it as well. We have been talking about this within the executive steering committee, thinking about how do we improve data quality? How do we make sure that there's better understanding of the data and that we're asking the right questions about what does the data actually tell us? And so that these are the kind of thoughtful conversations that I think improve the functioning of our own human capital. It's going to improve the conversations they're having with their leaders as well. The idea of taking feedback and turning it into you know, actionable items. That made me think of one other aspect of the Chico Council is the Chico Annual Survey. Can you talk a little bit more about what is the purpose of that survey and how are you using the results of that to to turn into action for the council as well? This was a priority for us was to be able to ensure that we are getting real-time feedback once a year about how the council is delivering in terms of the staff, right? So how are we, as as the executive director and my team, how are we delivering for the council? And then also getting feedback for OPM as well on some of the work that we're doing in our customer service. And there are actually several metrics within the annual survey that are tied to OPM strategic plan. And that's also very important for us to be keeping track of because Chico's are one of our you know, biggest customers and, and most important partners. So this has been very helpful. Our our scores for the Chico Council itself and the administration of the council are very high, but it's something that's very important for me to keep an eye on all the time because customer service and ensuring that we're meeting their needs is, is critical. I think there are places where we can look at the tools, the resources we're developing. We can get insights from the survey as well. There's some open-ended questions. So it's just a very powerful tool to make sure that we are continuing to to learn and, and listen to the Chico community. I want to switch gears a little bit now to talk about some of the barriers or challenges that were outlined in the report too. From my understanding or how I read it, there's kind of three big areas. There's the digital workforce, there's early career, and then there's kind of this senior level workforce. There's there's a lot within there, but can you tell me maybe some of the things that you've been working on more recently or that you're thinking about to try to address some of those bigger challenges in government? 
Congress actually added this as a new requirement that we report annually around employment barriers, which we've defined as as hiring barriers. And this is the first time that we've added this to the report per the requirement from Congress. We had, I think, a little bit of flexibility in terms of how we thought about it. So there was a specific request for us to talk about digital talent, but we also wanted to look at early career talent and senior talent as well, because we think it's very important to be looking at the whole human capital life cycle here. And what's interesting is when speaking with Chico's about this and getting their input, there's a lot of commonality across the board in terms of what some of these hiring challenges are that were identified. I think one is a concern around pay and making sure that agencies are able to, you know, be competitive with the private sector to compete for talent. I think another is the HR workforce itself and making sure that we have a strong and capable HR workforce that can actually have the capacity to do the recruitment and the and the hiring actions that needed because sometimes that can slow down the hiring process as well and I think we've talked a little bit about for example doing pooled hiring or sharing certificates and being able to hire HR talent in mass to help support the HR workforce more broadly across government is one way that we're starting to address that challenge. The hiring process can be lengthy at times. We're trying to address that in a number of ways through the president's management agenda and through um, hiring actions at OPM. So I think there's a lot underway to address these challenges. And I think it's interesting that you see so many commonalities kind of across the board, no matter whether it's entry level or, or senior level talent. And I know a lot of this was also brought up or at least addressed in the fiscal 2024 budget request as well. So, you know, as an example, part of the budget request talked about addressing pay compression for senior level roles. Are you working on progress in some of the areas that were addressed in the budget and that were also now brought up in the Chico Council report? The issue of pay compression was something that was raised by Chico's and and is mentioned in the report as well. And It's something that we talked about. We had a special session last year around SES reform and really diving more deeply into what are some of the opportunities for strengthening the SES across the board. And we really helped uh, inform and shape some of the work OPM is doing in this space. And and now you see in the FY24 budget, there is a specific mention around pay compression. So we look forward to And we sort of stand by ready to help and support as there are additional conversations going on around potential future legislative proposals. One other area I did want to touch on as well, you know, I think there is kind of an inherent connection between maybe what Chico's are looking at and what they want to focus on to improve for the future, as well as the uh, president's management agenda and what that's focusing on. So where do you see the connection between the first priority of the president's management agenda, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce, and maybe some of the issues or areas of focus that the Chico Council is looking at too? There is a lot of connectivity and it's very intentional between the president's management agenda and the work that we're doing on the Chico Council. And so to give you a couple of examples for the first strategy of the PMA, which is really focused on recruiting and hiring diverse talent that reflects America, we've now stood up a special working group of the Chico Council on recruitment and outreach. And there's also an affiliated community of practice that has over 200 members in it. 
And so this is a great opportunity for us to be really looking at what are some of the barriers to recruitment and outreach? How are we measuring the effectiveness of recruitment and outreach? We're really digging into a lot of these things. How can we build better strategic partnerships with diverse talent networks and sources? And so this is one of our newest working groups right now, but is very much closely aligned. I could say that all across the board because there's actually a working group around employee engagement that is very much focused on some of the objectives that we have in the PMA, one on future of the workforce. I'll mention one that I think is really important, which is the Elevating HR Working Group within the Chico Council. That working group is really connected to Strategy 4 of the PMA, which is really focused on how can we build the capacity and the capability of our workforce. And we are, within the Chico Council, really looking at, you know, how can we create a career pathing model for the HR workforce? We're working on a career growth platform so that there's going to be resources specifically for HR managers and leaders to be able to grow professionally and develop in their careers. So there's a lot of tangible work going on that is working to address things that Chico's have identified in the report and that's very much connected with the president's management agenda. I am also curious if there's any areas that the Chico Council has outlined that maybe the PMA needs to bring into focus more. Are there areas where you're looking to strengthen the the connection there? I don't know that there's any particular area right now where I feel that there's a gap. I think that we have a lot that we're already working on. And so this next year is really going to be about doubling down and, you know, crystallizing our priorities within the working groups that we have and making sure that we are able to deliver on, you know, the goals and objectives that we've set forward. What do you see as the future of the Chico Council over the next year? Where are you still hoping to focus and where are you hoping that Congress will see or take action on some of the things that were outlined in the report? We are at a place where we've got great leadership from Chico's all across government on these working groups, and we are in the process. And in some cases, we also have some cap goal funding, cross-agency priority goal funding under the PMA to support some projects. So we're just excited about being able to deliver on them. In terms of other things that are priorities for me, one is continuing, number one, to provide excellent customer service to the Chico community and really elevating their voice What's most important is just the partnership that we've built between the Chico Council and OPM career leaders. It's really terrific. And there are new Chico Council personnel policy office hours that we instituted that allow for these for early input on the development of policy that we're working on. I think that has proven to be very successful, whether it's on internship guidance or pathways programs refresh that's in the works. The insights that we're getting, like our policy is better because of the collaborative partnership that we have with the Chicos. Margot Conrad, Executive Director of the Chief Human Capital Officers Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, 
and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's hand. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where 
sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.